Okay, folks, good afternoon. Apologies for the late start. Apologies to the Capetonians for the bit of interruption and interference on that side. We don't have to apologize to Joburg people. Um, before this meeting, there was a, an exchange of emails and I made a read. Okay, um, and then Anthony said something like, that's probably all the introduction he needs. And I thought, you don't need an introduction. I mean, to introduce Anthony Asher to the Actual Society of Africa, do this whole spiel, and people afterwards say, yes, I know that, but who the heck are you? Um, so, in case there's anybody who doesn't know, Anthony is a fellow of the Actual Society of Africa. Um, he moved to Australia in 2003. He's held the view that the actuarial profession contributes to society by uh, creating financial security for people. And um, throughout his career as an actuary, he's contributed uh, through uh, practicing in, in product development, making sure that the product matches the need of the, um, of the, the, the client, uh, drawing the attention of the profession through this, to this approach through research and education, uh, participation in various government and, and other uh, investigations and initiatives. He served on the Council of the Actual Society. He was a member of a disciplinary committee at the time these committees were appointed on an ad hoc basis. Um, served on the National Consultative National Retirement Consultative Forum, was a member of the Taylor Commission into Social Security. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Like I said, he relocated to Australia in 2003, where he joined the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority. After that, he, um, he moved to a consulting company. And then since 2011, um, he was in South Africa, he was a lecturer at WITS for 14 years. So he's always had this burning desire to teach at the real university and... In 2011, they still couldn't find a position for him at Free State University, so he joined the University of New South Wales. Um, his current research includes various issues around financial planning and a virtue theory approach to risk culture and overregulation. Anthony, I have polished you now. Please don't disappoint him again. <laughs> really, thanks, Ben. Thank you. I feel as I really am singing for my song, my, my supper with, a, with, this, um, with this mic. Um, really nice to be here again. Um, uh, it, it's really great to be back in South Africa. There's a sort of, I feel very much at home and I'm very much welcomed every time. Um, and you know, some, of the, some of the times I've been here, I thought, well, you know, um, is, have I really got something worth saying? But I've really said it anyway because I'd like to meet everyone. But this time I really do think I've got something that I, I've got something by the tail. Whether I've got it right or not, and how wrong, how, how much it needs to be polished, I, I don't know. But um, I think it's quite important, and, and, but it's quite a big exercise. So um, bear with me. Well, no, work hard to stay with me because it's quite, it, it, there's quite a lot to be said. Um, and obviously it's, 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 it's a, difficult question. Um, is greed good for business? Um, some people think so. Um, some pe people think not. Uh, I spent most of last year, a good deal of last year anyway, my research time last year, developing <coughs> submissions to the Royal Commission on uh, misconduct in the financial services in, in Australia. And part of the reason was that 
the commissioner actually said in his interim report, the problem is greed um, as the cause of all this misconduct. And I looked at it and I thought, well, we don't really know much about greed, um, or I haven't really thought much about greed. What, what, what does he mean? Um, and I've spent ages, uh, lo a lot, um, reading up and making up the gaps in my knowledge about greed um, in, over the ensuing year. <clears throat> so, uh, my agenda. I'm going to try and persuade you that greed is exploitative um, and ask the question, is it motivating? Because if it is motivating, it then permits the exploitation um, or may justify the exploitation. Um, I want to take us through both the personal and structural origins of our decisions, of our motivation. Um, I want to suggest that greed is a... Um, is, a, is actually best understood as a distortion of personal motivation and a personal challenge. Um, we look a little bit at alternative views from economics and from psychology and religion. Um, look at institutional market design, how that can help control greed and address it, and why institutional economic and regulatory challenges is, is, is a challenge to us to reform. And then some differences at the end to show where I come from that's different from what common views that that you may have or f share or think might, may come, will come across. Um, we've got enough time, so please interrupt um, briefly. Um, well, no, interrupt, feel free to interrupt as I go along. Um, I don't think we can hear you from Johannesburg, so you'll just have to uh, um, SMS me. I've got my phone here, so... Um, you can do that to my Australian number, which you'll find on the web, seeing you've almost certainly got that facility. All right. Greed is exploitative. Is it motivating? So let me define greed as insatiable. Insatiable appetite cannot be satisfied, mainly for money, and that leads to, in particular, overpricing, overservicing, and sometimes recklessness. So I'm not saying that greed is... Um, that I'm not saying that... Uh, self-interest is greed. Greed is beyond self-interest. Self-interest is given. We expect, we expect everyone to look after themselves, and if they don't, they're, um, they're, they're, they're problems. Um, but in a, in a transaction, if one party uses collateral power, something unrelated to the transaction, to manipulate the outcome of a transaction, they can, they can overcharge or overservice or, or in another situation, be, be reckless. So the question is, a fair transaction, Margaret and I deal with each other. We both know exactly what we're dealing with. She pays me and I give her the service or the product or whatever it is. Fine, fair. We, if she makes a profit, that's also fine. The problem is, is if in some way I am deceived. She doesn't tell me everything about it. Or, um, yeah, she doesn't tell me everything about it, or I'm, in fact, forced to use her because I'm desperate for it. Um, no, I, was I offering the service? I, I, I force her to, um, to use it because she's desperate. She hasn't got other thoughts. She ha hasn't got time to look around. So, in our economic terms, the consequence of greed is called economic rent. It's, it's profits made that is not necessary to produce the goods. So, I'm not against profit. For those of you who were in my honours classes, and I spent a lot of time te teaching the fact that pro profit is, it should be maximised and is, is maximised when marginal cost equals marginal revenue. It's important to get there. 
Beyond that is the problem. Okay, so it's overcharging, over-servicing, and that's, you can, you know, lawyers are worse at over-servicing. Drag you into a court case that you don't want. But the doctors do it, actuaries do it. I mean, long reports and excessive, excessive number of pages. We can all over-service, give people more than they need. And then obviously in the GFC there was recklessness. Um, oh, hi, we can see the Joburg people. You're all at the back. Oh, there we go. Um, hi. So, free and efficient markets require rules of the game that create transparency so that the parties can get what they really want, choice to transact or to walk away, and trust so that you not waste time checking on others. All three, particularly trust, are undermined if one party is greedy. Now, I just at this point, let me just say that the one example of this is taken from Douglas North, who... Um, who's an uh, institutional economist, he compares the souk markets in the Middle East, S-U-Q. Um, well, he looks at them, and he's, they're, they're where you, you, go to, you go to Cairo and you try and buy a, a, um, a Persian carpet, and you negotiate, okay? And the, the name of the game, the rules of the game are, he tries to get you, the shopkeeper tries to get you to pay as much as possible, and you try to get the best bargain as possible, and you pay as little as possible. It's fun, all right? A big negotiation. But when you buy everything that way, it is extremely time-consuming. And um, if you're not really sussed, you get ripped off. In fact, North says that 50% of the cost of production is consumed by the negotiation for the price. Now, you compare that with you go into... Woolies or pick and pay here, fixed price, no negotiation. You go in, you walk out, and they take a 10% profit margin or whatever they cost, cost margin. You think, much more sensible. This must have evolved in the West and didn't do in the Middle East. Didn't evolve in the West. The Quakers took 200 years from the middle of the 17th to the middle of the 19th century to move markets into a situation where it was standard for prices to be fixed. And why did they do it? Because it was fair. Because, I mean, the Quakers are sort of a peripheral Christian religious group, um, um, but they're very strong on, on, on business. So you, you've heard of Quaker Oats and Cadbury's and Barclays and Roundtree, all Quaker companies. Um, and, and the, the um, department stores in, in New York were the ones that started at fixed prices so that the, the youngest child got the same deal as the wisest adult, or the, 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 the savviest adult. Uh, it was a fairness question. So really important. It is important to change, to change institutions so that they are more efficient and more fair. But, okay, does greed motivate people to work harder and more creatively? To answer this, we must look more closely at motivation. Right, now is the difficult bit. Oh, sorry, a couple more before we get there. Um, just to, um, this is just the model. Personal motivation, um, institutional purpose. This is what motivates us internally. We've got um, our mental models, our um, emotions, as we'll come, come to, interactions with people. And then we create the institutions. Institutions exist because people change them. Um, the institutions include cultures, norms, and logics, and there's power in an organization and regulation. 
And those institutions then socialize us to, to change our minds and to, make, to move us towards doing different things. So I'm not saying that motivation comes from one or the other, but some sort of interactive complex, uh, complex arrangement. So what motivates us? You all know Maslow. Sorry, it's a bit small here, but um, so anyone not come across Maslow? 1943 paper at the bottom, physiological needs, safety needs, going up, belonging, aesthetic, self-actualization and transcendence. Those are the areas where in order to live in the world, we have these needs. And if we look at the institutions that exist, so here are the needs on the left-hand column from Maslow, the institutions that exist, as the sociologists would say it, to be created to meet those needs. And the, we have to have them. Um, family, firms, departments of justice and defense, um, schools, universities, religious, religious institutions. Um, not everyone belongs directly to one of those, but they, are, they have sort of different, uh, different forms in different places. So, personal needs, institutions, that makes sense. Now, this is really fun. That's, that, that's pretty odd. 1943, the, inst the sociological institution has been around for a century, probably. This is new. 19 2017. Dopamine. So what they say, what this neuroscientist said, by, they, can, you know, they look into your brain and they can measure this, where the, what, what hormones are being generated and which parts of your brain are activated and what's activating them and how they merge together. And this paper by um, Shieta and her colleagues um, pulls it all together and says, actually, what really seems to be happening is you've got what they call the dopaminergic reward system that drives us to want. That's the wanting uh, hormone and the wanting um, system in our bodies, minds, that creates some sort of enthusiasm. And then it branches out to different satisfactions. So dopamine drives us to want. The satisfactions are what we like. There's actually a gap between the two is what they have discovered. Now, I would go back. I think a lot of people have read that for many years, but that's, this, is, this is now confirmed by, um, by this. And what they've got at the top is what they say, a family tree of discrete positive emotions. So the positive emotions, um, pride is associated with the, the uh, hormone, the generation of hormone serotonin, um, sexual desire with testosterone, love and contentment with oxytocin, um, awe and uh, amusement, play and, and religion with the cannabinoids and the opioids, uh, attachment, love and gratitude and opioids. So these different hormones create a different set of satisfactions. Interesting. Now, we can actually map them. And this is where, uh, this is why I think I'm onto something, because I think it actually, it sort of fits together. So we've got here the dopaminergic appetites that actually match the needs so because we have the needs, we necessarily need to have um, something to drive us to meet the needs. And in fact, I was reading today, they tried, out, they tried to breed rats. They managed to breed rats and to drug them so they had no dopamine. And drugs with no dopamine don't even eat. They starve to death. 
Dopamine is what drives us to want. Um, so we have all those things, hunger, libido, curiosity, um, uh, yeah, desire for identity and autonomy, etc. And although there's only one sort of set of drivers, there are different rewards. And we've got cannabinoids, serotonin, testosterone, oxytocin, opioids. So these, um, these different, different hormones satisfy different needs. I can see that there's some consequences for how we motivate, how, how, we, motivate, how we are motivated, and how we are best find um, psychological personal health. And if that wasn't exciting enough, I've then been working for some, some years on this question of the virtues, which come back from Aquinas. So Thomas Aquinas, 1400-odd, um, the major theologian of the Middle Ages, developed this, um, this set of virtues, uh, which he took partly from the Greeks, so the four cardinal virtues from the Greek philosophers, going back to the Greek philosophers, which are um, justice, uh, courage, wisdom, self-control, yeah, those four. And then he added faith, hope, and love from St. Paul. Um, now, they fit actually in fairly well, although and humility and integrity, which um, uh, Aquinas hadn't got as one of the, uh, as, uh, in the seven, but he did have them as virtues, as mentioned in his Summa Theologicae. Um, but because, you know, the magic number in the Middle Ages was seven, you know, the Greeks had the magic number of four, four virtues, and Aquinas had to have seven, so that's how it worked out. But when you put them, they fit quite well. So, obviously, wisdom means cognition. Self-control means these, these psychological virtues. And in relationship, we want justice. Justice that everyone gets a fair share, and love that sort of builds us together. So we go back. So go back another eight hundred years, and we get Evagrius Ponticus, um, who my wife and I discovered two couple of years ago. Um, and Evagrius was Archdeacon of Constantinople in three ninety, um, and he got involved with a married woman for some reason or other, and had to flee to the Egyptian desert where he became a monk. Um, but being an educated man, he wrote a lot and sort of wrote up what the monks were believing. And he came up with the seven deadly sins. Well, what he called, he didn't call them the deadly sins, he called them logismoi, or nations. And they, I mean, I've added and subtracted a little bit from them to get to that, that list, but they fit again quite well. And of course, why I sort of thought about him initially was that greed is one of the major, one of his seven temptations. So, um, greed. Gluttony, lust, uh, they can't believe his temptations. But you remember these guys were in the desert and they, had, and they were living on bread and nothing else. Um, so those physical things counted quite a lot to them. Um, envy and anger relating to relationships, arrogance, pride that he had. Um, he had a couple of cynicism, I think, is what he called it, acedia, um, which doesn't get translated very easily from the Greek. I think it's cynicism, that you basically don't believe in, in good. Um, and then in courage, was he had despair or sorrow. Um, but greed actually comes up everywhere. But so here were these temptations. So his point was, how do we 
work out what undermines the virtues. He didn't have the seven virtues at that stage. So he just said, what undermines the, the vocation, the life of a monk? These are the things that do it. But in fact, they undermine all our healthy, um, healthy uh, appetites and the meeting of the healthy appetites. And finally, on the score... Um, Shiota were talking about the positive emotions. So these are the ones in the third column. But they're also negative emotions. And they're apparently, um, I, I sort of reading that they're more negative emotions than positive ones, but um, there's certainly enough, enough there. That, um, the challenges, uh, pain, anomie at the top is um, a thing from the sociologists. It's a sort of type of despair. It's uh, a Emil Durkheim, the last two centuries ago now, um, looked at anomie and as a cause of suicide, as sort of a loss of meaning. Um, uh, confusion in, in, in intellectual humiliation and guilt and esteem. A lot of people are really burdened, not necessarily by humiliation, but by feeling that they're guilty and, that, and so lose their feeling of identity and um, integrity. Um, sadness, indignation. Um, now, to an extent, uh, this yeah, that's the um, that's the pattern. To an extent, I think this actually this row, the safety row, and the challenges are linked because I actually, although dopamine is a driver for the positive um, emotions, I think fear is actually a, is separate from dopamine. Adrenaline is separate. Dopamine. So I think the when the market when you talk about greed and fear of being the two drivers of human behaviour, that is partly true. Um, so that would be dopamine and adrenaline, or noradrenaline, or whatever. Um, and the question of addressing fear is quite important in our in motivation. People can actually acquire money because of fear as well. But so my major story, and as you can see, it's quite complicated. Um, but I think the as I was doing it, I thought, oh, this fits in quite well. I mean, I do find, you know, I'm moving things around a little bit. Um, but it's intended as a mind map, an interdisciplinary mind map. So if we go to look at greed, um, we can't just look at one part of uh, one part of life. We've got to step back and, 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 and see what's going on. So this is the opportunity to step and say, okay, what's the big picture? Um, and that, I, I think, is at least a start to sort of pull together the, the, the big picture of our motivation. So now the question is, what are the consequences? Uh, anyone want to make any comment, questions at this point? All right. So the uh, attention is mounting. Um, so other psychological insights from uh, the psychoanalysts. So, so um, a, a branch of psychology. Um, Freud and Jung and whatnot were sort of psychoanalysts. Um, are they, They're criticised very often for not having a particularly um, scientific approach and for being um, lacking in objectivity. But their advantage is that they actually deal with people. They actually people go to them for treatment, so they actually try and diagnose what the problems are, and they're able to provide treatment and bring people out of mental illness of various sorts, despair, depression, um, whatever. And 
they'll tell you that they do come across people that are addicted to greed. Now, this is the point, if you go back to the sort of the question of dopamine, you can actually get addicted to dopamine. It is, in fact, the source of addiction. So, addiction to drugs, alcohol, sex, money, is because uh, gambling being a, the, the obvious thing. People are desperate wanting these things, even though they offer no satisfaction. And this is a sort of contradiction, and, but they're addicted to the dopamine. Not to the satisfaction, to the dopamine. Um, and so Nicolay describes a client that he had, exploitative, self-serving, lacking in empathy, entertaining unrealistic expectations of entitlement without assuming reciprocal responsibilities. A disintegrated personality who's just addicted to wanting more. Um, I think he was an estate agent, this particular guy, but you can see that that might be a situation of um, where you might get addicted to greed. So they say the causes go back to inappropriate response to weaning. Your mother did, was, wasn't gentle enough when she, when she took you off, your, off her breast. Um, and uncertain childhoods. Now you might say, well, this, this, is, this is a little unscientific, and to an extent it is, but it is actually the accumulation of a lot of experience of individuals, and they've identified this as a, um, a, a, as a problem. And I think it comes back to the question of, well, okay, it ties in with the question that one of the antidotes to greed is love. In fact, <laughs> if they spray your nostrils with oxytocin before you do these dictator games, that they, uh, the economists play with, you become less selfish. So um, the, the dictator games, you, you're given money and you've got to decide how much you're going to give to someone else. Well, there's an ultimatum game that whereby if you give it to the other person, you, you only get it if the other person accepts. Um, and so they can do these same experiments over many, many people. And oxytocin is, is the, um, the hormone that relates to cuddly type of love, nurturing love, and it makes you makes you more gentle. So we are very much, um, well, we are both chemical and otherwise. So, and then the, the other type of work that psychologists have done is to do, you know, um, various research as to whether greed is related to materialism and self-interest and miserliness, and it is, but it's, they are distinct concepts. So you can be a miser without being greedy. In other words, you don't spend, you, you, you don't spend, but you may not be greedy, um, and etc. You might be materialistic and still greedy. Or not greedy, and because um, you might measure everything in terms of materialism, and this thing about fear, not, not just greed. Right. <coughs> now, at this stage, sorry, I didn't bring it out. This is my sermon, but I need to sort of at least um, the sermon part of this talk, but I need at least to say something to sort of explain to those of you that might find it, if you find it difficult for me to preach in the middle of a lecture. So this is from um, David White, who's a, um, a, a poet that I enjoy a lot. So he says, and we're going to see, because I'm going to be talking, as you see, about love. He says, it doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned. If you know despair 
or can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with firm eyes saying, this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling towards the center of your longing. To repeat that, I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling towards the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequence of love and the bitter, unwanted passion of sure defeat. I have been told in that fierce embrace, even the gods speak of God. The unwanted passion of sure defeat. And the point is what I'm trying to, what I, I think he's got and what is inherent in much good literature, really good literature, stuff that moves us, is the question of desire. How do we, what do we want? And what we want is really central to who we are. So from, I'm going to take the Christian view of, of, of want, and you can use it to apply to whatever your religious or non-religious um, position is. So here is the Ten Commandments. Um, here are the Ten Commandments, which are Jewish as well, Jewish and, 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 and I think the Muslims accept it as well. Now, you've got to understand the, as understand a lot of ancient literature, you've got to understand that much of it is chiastic, which means it circles round. It, instead of um, literature that was passed on orally needed a different type needs a different type of memorizing to literature that's written. So literature that's written, you can go A, B, C, D, consequence D. Very much of ancient literature, from Homer through the Bible, through, through to, the, um, to the Quran, apparently, um, goes not like A, B, C, D, but A, B, C, D, C, B, A. It comes back to where it started. And that's, you can see, it's part of, if you're going to remember something, it's easier to remember under those circumstances. So, the Ten Commandments are interesting on this score. So, there they are. And what you see is, you should have no idols. Make no idols. You should not covet. You should love God. You should not love things. And interesting, honor God's name, which is related to speaking. No lying, related to speaking. Honor the Sabbath, which means you earn less money. No, no stealing, which means you don't, you know, you're getting more money. Um, honor, the, on, honor your parents, no adultery, family questions. Leading to the center, which is very often the important part of, the, um, of a set of commandments, which is do not murder, um, being re effectively respect the, the lives of others. And that can be, as certainly Christian and Jewish scholars would do, would say not murdering is much more important than just the, the actual act of slaughtering. Um, so, now that, that throws a whole lot of light on a number of otherwise relatively puzzling things in the New Testament. Um, so, Paul says in Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil, which translators don't like and very often translated as is the root of all sorts of evil. But actually, that comes from the Hindu Mahabharata, about 3rd century BC. And um, apparently, is also in a lot of Greek writings of about that time, the third century. So Paul is actually commenting on, is, 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 is bringing this from um, common saying. So you can say, okay, so the love of money is widely recognized as the root of all evil. 
It's also one of the three poisons in Buddhism. Um, and Paul also says, talks about covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry, which means he actually did have this association in his head. Um, Jesus says, you, can't, you cannot serve love or money, love and money. So the spiritual view of greed is actually it's misplaced love. It's a mis... Um, yeah, you've, you've got your desire and you're desiring, as C.S. Lewis says, too little rather than too much. And the question is, I mean, what, what is really required, the, the solution to greed from the spiritual perspective, um, if we look at, if we look at it, um, how do you get from the temptations and the, um, the control of your different appetites? Um, you need to love God so that it puts them all into its, their appropriate place. See, first, when Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which deals with the Ten Commandments, Jesus sums it up. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added to you. So, the wisdom of the ages suggests that actually this greed is a misplaced love. We need to reorientate our love, our lives. And if not, I'm suggesting that it starts there. But basically, we need to balance all these um, positive emotions and positive um, uh, positive hormones to be fully healthy individuals. And we know that, don't we? It's a balanced life, family, self-esteem, appropriate relationships, security, time to think, as well as the sort of housing and food and clothing and all these things. So this is the trouble, all right? Neoliberal economics, which is sometimes referred to as standard economic theory. Um, In in, in the paper, I quote uh, Daniel Kahneman saying, standard economic theory is unusual in that it doesn't deal with justice. And I asked one of my colleagues at UNSW from the... um, from the economics department to comment on my paper. Um, and he said, you make me laugh. Daniel Kahneman isn't an expert in economics. The only I mean, I think, well, but he won the Nobel Prize for economics. Surely I could quote him as, a, as someone who talks about it. But they, like you see, what is interesting, they talk about standard economics. Now, what would happen to you if, you th- if I said standard actuarial theory when we were having an argument, I said, our oh, standard actuarial theory is this. You're wrong. It's, it, it's, it, it, it's emotional, okay? It's, it's got no, there's no logical argument to talk about standard economic, actuarial theory or standard economics or mainstream economics. Who says it's mainstream? Well, the people who think that way are mainstream. Actually, what has happened? After the war... A number of economists, less than 50, got together in the Mount Pelerin Society. There are Americans and Austrians, von Hayek, Friedman, a guy called Director, um, and a a number of others um, from Mises, got together to form the Mount Pelerin Society with the objective of moving economic thought and political thought away from the collectivism of the early part of the communism and the collectivism of um, 
you know, welfare economics, etc., that they thought was a risk to freedom. And they operated on the basis, they redefined monopoly, they redefined what liberal is, they, I think a genuine, can be called neoliberal economics, and they, and they changed the way markets, they made markets synonymous with freedom. Now, you might say this is conspiracy theory. It's not conspiracy theory because they themselves, that's what they said. You can read their papers and the books about them where they shared, they shared their papers with people. 50 people changed the world and we got Reagan and Thatcher and neoliberal economics. The economics that basically said everyone is self-motivated, is, is self-motivated, self-interested, greedy, and therefore the economy needs to be adjusted so that we align self-interest with the interests of the shareholders. Now, that's a legitimate theory on its own, but it's not standard. Most economists don't believe it, in my experience. Um, but even if they do, it's still not universally believed. And it doesn't tie up with these, this, this multiple set of, of, of motivations. They effectively blank out all those things. And I think that's quite important to, to grasp. There's this, this a political argument about neoliberal economics, and not actually a, an intellectual one. Um, sorry. Just a few quick observations on mental illness, um, which come from, my, from, the, from the table. Which So dysfunction, there's a debate within psychology about whether the, whether dysfunction is cognitive, whether it's mental illness is cognitive, whether it's emotional, or whether it has chemical causes, I think what the table says is all all all, all irrelevant. Um, it's important to deal with the challenges of guilt and indignation. Sorry, yeah. So guilt means that I feel guilty and I need forgiveness. Indignation means that you're guilty, um, and uh, well, you should be punished. <laughs> the two are tied together on the basis that my forgiveness of you is tied together with feeling forgiven myself. Um, a lot of psychology goes towards trying to eliminate artificial guilt. Um, sure, you need to be liberated from artificial guilt, but you're lucky to be artificially guilty. Most of us are guilty, really, in many ways, and need forgiveness. That's one of the issues. I mean, I've spoken to it in an HIV um, in a situation where HIV people are present. If you've got HIV, the chances are very high that you are irresponsible. Now, that does not mean to say that you should be stigmatized, but you did make a mistake. And if you don't admit the mistake, there's no chance of moving beyond it. Now, that's just an example that's particularly... Um, particularly emotional and, 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 and difficult to deal with in the South African context. But it's true that you've got to deal with guilt, but it should not be stigmatizing. It should be um, reintegrated, that, that the forgiveness and the dealing with it needs to be reintegrative. We need forgiveness, we need to reintegrate. And I mean, we are leaders in that. I mean, if you look at the um, Truth and Reconciliation Committee, we've dealt with a lot more than... Um, an unprotected sex. So, and then question of humiliation and fear addressed by others. So this, this, the model works in mental illness ways. You can, you can think of things in different ways. But conclusions on motivation here. 
There are several sources of mot motivation. Not all are fungible. That's really important. You can't buy love. You can't buy reputation. You can't buy wisdom. You can't buy even pleasure from exercise. There are lots of things you cannot buy that are important for our satisfaction. We know that, but this is just um, emphasizing it. True happiness, and this is this question of flow, comes when, so have you come across flow? Szynski, Mihaly, or whatever. So uh, you've done hundreds of thousands of um, questionnaires of, of very detailed research of what makes people happy. And he says it, it's this flow, is when everything comes together. Um, when you're really expert, when you're really committed, when you're really um, involved, um, enjoying life, it, that creates the enjoyment when all these things come together. So happiness, when you can develop and enjoy all the virtues, all these um, satisfactions, it requires education, the Latin educare, leading out, because the virtue is already there, and it requires intentionality. You actually have to want to do it to get real happiness out of it, as far as he said, the... the the flow people say. Incentives do motivate, but there are different reasons for doing for why they motivate. Firstly, if you have an incentive in the institution, basically in an organization, basically what you're saying is this is important. So there's a cognitive element to that. And um, it's well known that if you measure something, people will people will respond to it. So it's, it makes it salient. Don't need any motivation. I was surprised when I was in Scotland, and I, did, I was with the um, Scottish Life for six weeks, just doing an actuarial audit, which they were good enough to allow me to do, um, to pay for a bit of my sabbatical in 1998. Um, they had set up a admin system where they had very detailed feedback on the standard times for every single administrative um, activity they did, and they allocated people based on standard times and the standard times they've been working with it for three or four years standard times come down all the time this is the service level agreement type stuff standard times for how long the letter took and it made no difference to salaries but it improved because it was measured okay so salience is important secondly there are measures of collaboration we all want to be liked we, we like being part of a group and we would, if we and if the group has particular goals, we want to collaborate with them. So if you set up an incentive and say this is what we're aiming for, people will naturally go for it anyway, regardless of whether that's you know that's how sports teams works. Sports teams work. You don't actually have to pay people. And clearly, there are measures of status and identity. Um, and we'll come back to this question of competition just now. And they give an impression of security. So they don't, in many respects, you, you, the incentives don't necessarily make any difference in terms of the money that's looked at. And certainly with the high CEO salaries we'll come back to, most of them can't spend, can't, can't spend the money, and a number I know have retired in order to give it away. Um, consequences for pros, 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 prosperity. Does it, does, does greed motivate? Well, a lot of management research, I don't know if you've come across Hertzberg's work in the 50s, has already shown that intrinsic motivation is more powerful than extrinsic motivation than money. Now we have a more granular view of why this different, this different um, stuff from neuroscience. And so we might su suspect that those who justify greed are mistaken or doing so for their own purposes. So Keynes, Lord Keynes thought 
in the 30s said that we needed greed, although it was terrible, we needed to bring ourselves out of the poverty that existed at the time. And he thought, you know, you need animal spirits, greed, to drive investments. But we're all involved in institutions which, which, where you don't need greed to invite you, we, we save pensions to invest, so that he's wrong. Jensen and Meckling, come across Michael Jensen, agency theory. What do they teach at Bits and Cape Town these days? Okay, that was that's the question of aligning aligning the interests of directors with um, with of CEOs with with the company by giving them share options, etc. They're the beginning of that. They thought that alignment with greed would encourage growth. We now know that's merely justified greed. Michael Jensen's written, tried trying to undo the, the damage he's done. Has written um, written a long paper of 37 things that need to be done to change executive remuneration. Um, the one I like is that uh, directors should stop behaving as, as if they were employees of the CEO. Um, we also know that over-servicing, over-production, has serious ecological consequences and that some other means is now required to create jobs. Um, and then... Friedman and the Mount Pelerin Society, and Ayn Rand, if you're a fan of hers, thought that self-interest propels free markets. We found that they can be exploitative and reckless if dominated by vested interests. And you've got that wonderful uh, um, Alan Greenspan's, uh, the Greenspan, uh, um, what's it called, recanting. Alan Greenspan was actually a disciple of Ayn Rand, and, and that's the way you talk about it the way people that were close to her because she was quite a dominating personality. Um, and uh, he, he, he's got that apology in front of the Congress to say, I thought that self-interest would be enough to stop people from being reckless. I was wrong. Um, so finally, let's just go a little bit about institutions. So going back to this diagram, and these are the people that I find uh, um, that sort of writers that I found useful. Um, Bandura has, talks about embedded agency, that institutions are, in fact, the embedded result of people's actions. Um, Manka Olson talks about that institutions don't develop spontaneously. They don't just evolve. Um, they, they, need not, they need people to act, but he says they're most corrupt. They're, most, they're very subject to corruption by small groups. So the thing about small groups can influence regulation because they can organize more easily. Um, and if, if, if their interests are huge and everyone else's interests are small, they will organize for their own profit. And it's a really useful understanding of what goes on with, with lobbying in, the, um, in, 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 in politics. And one of the reasons why one's got to be alert to the, um, to the possibility that the small groups are there manipulating this situation. I mean, you, you've got it here in South Africa in, in Spain, haven't we? It's what corruption. A small group of, um, yeah, a small group of people who've managed to sort of, what's the word? State capture. Um, Eleanor Ostrom, wonderful writer on collective action, the only woman to win the Nobel Prize for economics in memory of Alfred Nobel. She talks about collective action. She notes that it can be government or private. That's really quite helpful. So if you see something needs to be done, you don't have to wait. You don't have to lobby. You don't have to wait for government. Very often, private collective organizations can do things. And, you know, we're here in the mutual because in 1846, 
well, John Fairburn and, the, and a bunch of, Cape, of well-meaning Cape Town people thought it was time to set up a life insurance company on a mutual basis. And it, one might well, as I do, as you remember, lobbied against uh, demutualization, regret the fact that it is no longer mutual. Um, and one might argue, and I think there's a strong argument to say that the actual, they were more trustworthy as a mutual than they are now. Um, happy, to, happy to discuss that. Peter Drucker says, if the decent and idealistic, idealistic toss power into the gutter, the gutter snipes pick it up. That's a real challenge for us to say that and this is, because some people are greedy and because small group, greedy groups can organize, we have got not, we've got to prevent it from work at, limit, at stopping the corruption of organizations that Olson talks about. So that's in terms of what we need to do institutionally. Personally, we need to develop our own Virtue. I've spoken about passion, and I, you know, David White's passion story. Um, Alistair McIntyre talks about virtues being created, are only really created in what he calls practices. And it means something like the actuarial profession, where you've got, you're actually committed in a tradition to a particular contribution to make to society where extrinsic motivation, well, where intrinsic motivation is important. If you want to be a good actuary, and you want to do the job appropriately, you're not just, you're not doing it for money primarily. That's the consequence that may or may not come. And then that's, that's which is very similar to Sixent Mihaly's idea of flow. And what I like on this score, so people, some people say, well, it all depends on the institutions. If, you know, it's really, people will behave based on their institutions. But um, T.S. Eliot has it in this, in, in his, in his, uh, Poetry, play the rock. We constantly try to avoid the darkness without and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that we have no need, that there is no need to be good. Apparently, I, um, Gandhi repeated it very often, um, and I think it's really quite important. We have to have personal responsibility as well as a, as a social one. Um, so, just in terms of sort of, what's this called? Um, a thought experiment. Shareholder primacy is a big debate. The, the idea that companies exist to make profits for shareholders, and that's what we should. That's what we should. We should have, and that's the right way of going about. And the shareholders can be greedy because they want can maximise profits. So let me ask the question: Would you prefer to work for a company where shareholder capital absorbed losses? and staff were protected against possible retrenchment and recessions? Or are you happy to work for a company where you will be retrenched as soon as the profits uh, go down so that the dividend can be maintained? That's a contract. Free to choose those contracts one way or the other. Which would you prefer? Anyone prefer to work for a company that retrenches them in recession? Would you want to work for a company where management thought it was their job to motivate, manipulate staff into working overtime and accepting less than their fair pay? Or would you prefer a company that tried to be fair, that wanted to be fair and said it was fair and told you to go home at office four or five or whatever the time is? Would you prefer to work for an organization committed to providing a, for, for, for a social purpose financial security or whatever, while adequately making profits? 
Would you prefer to work for a company with a flat organizational structure and a collegial atmosphere, or one where the boss is paid astronomical salaries and sees himself as a superior being? I mean, I, I, that's a little, uh, what's the word, flippant or supercilious or whatever. Um, but the research does show that if there's a huge gap between the top guy and the next person down, occasionally a woman, the next person down, they, they become meaner. Meaner managers is what, you know, you actually become, you become, begin to see the people that are working for you as inferior. It works that, it works that way. As I, I asked a group of actuaries in Australia last year, and a quarter of them said it was the question of this, these high pay, this high pay was, um, was a critical question in governance. The average out of one to 10 was 7.6 as being a critical issue. And the regulators, including Apple, who I used to work for, say it's not, ignore it completely. Serious problem. So these, and then the free markets. Do you want to participate in markets where the suppliers are always trying to draw you into paying too much for things you do not want? And, okay, now let me just be practical here. Back book, front book, that, that wording used here. Loyalty tax. How many companies in insurance, insurance companies impose a loyalty tax here? That's a really actuarial question. Okay, I mean, so I know that in Australia, if you go back, go onto the, on, you go onto the internet when you renew your short-term insurance, you get a better deal than you've just been offered. Now, actuaries are causing that, they're deciding that because people are generally to. Um, too lazy or too, too, uh, too trusting to, 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 check, to check on you. Is that fair? I think it's manipulative. I do not want to do business with a company that does, that does that. Why should I? Well, the trouble is that everyone's doing it. That's the bottom problem. But there's no need for that to be the case. And it would be really good to look at ways of doing it differently. Um, how can we create such organizations and markets It's a challenge? I really would like to see people doing that, saying, we're going to change, we're going to do it differently. And you must, there must be a way of doing it differently. There's no need. It's just like fixed pricing. You don't have to negotiate. You can fix your price and be transparent. And you should be able to make a profit to do that in doing that. We effectively behave like second-hand car salesmen when we, when we try and bluff people into paying more money for the same product. Maybe, sorry, that's rude to second-hand car salesmen. All right. Um, restraining greed, we need to, it's, I won't go through this in huge detail. Want to educate in virtue. Literature is one of the ways you do it. Uh, Othello, um, Shakespeare, so Shakespeare, um, Dostoevsky, whatever, the Bible. Um, we need to introduce ethics back into the social sciences. We need to make people technically literate. Basically, we've got to shame per potential perpetrators of greed by making them wise and just, and we've got to encourage potential victims of greed by making them courageous and self-controlled so they're not uh, written over. And then within society, we can look at professionalism, which offers to do things without, without being greedy. We can look at mutuals. We can look at regulation. We look at actual government provision, which happens um, in some cases because the industry can't be trusted not to be greedy. 
two ways of fixing greed institutionally, trans uh, preventative and after the event. There's transparency. Um, I put CalPES there. I did, look, the investment report, 376 pages, every single investment, uh, sort of radical transparency. And in Norway, they publish everyone's salary. You can go onto the net and find out what your neighbor's taxable income was, which incidentally has made people unhappier, which is maybe a problem, but maybe it'll come, come right. Choice, uh, sorry, the, the A's triple, so that's the, um, you, that's the Australian Competition and something commission, um, that's to stop monopolies. This side didn't get changed. Um, licensing, we can license, we can standardize or ban things, and their conduct rules, prudential rules that the um, prudential authorities have, prohibition of conflicts of interest, or to stop people from being greedy. Um, and then after the event, we can punish them for bad faith, we can sue people, and we can restitute un unjust, unjust gains. So this is partly to say all these things are there to address greed. So greed is a problem and needs to be addressed, and these things need to be strengthened to um, address them. So someone should have some, I'm, I'm almost at the end, so maybe we should go to the end and then we, we'll have questions. Um, competition creates winners and losers. And this is a bit of a problem. Winners feel good because they have elevated levels of testosterone. But losers feel bad. So we do have a bit of a problem if we, and they feel worse if they continue to be... Um, uh, subject to the winner. Okay, low levels of testosterone, high levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So the challenge is to create organizations where the challenge, the challenge that's created, the challenge to us, the desire for competition of identity is to get the job done excellently and collaboratively. So collaborative organizations ought to be, flattering collaborative organizations ought to in the long run be better. Um, sorry. TFT and TFTT, um, tit for tat. So in game theory, um, tit for tat was found to be superior to any other strategy. So when you, you collaborated, the point was you collaborate unless the other person doesn't collaborate, and then you, if 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 um, if she if she defects, then you punish her. Okay, that's that's that that makes some sense. But then, after a lot of work, they discovered that a more efficient way in the long run, if you had a thousand games or many more than that, was tit-for-two-tats. And the tit-for-two-tats basically introduces forgiveness. The first time you're tit-tat, you don't tat. Or oh, sorry, the other way around. You're tatted, you don't tit. Um, and the second time you punish. So you, you limit the punishment. Less punishment creates more... Um, more efficiency in the long run. But it took a long time to work out that that was the case. So collaboration is better, but it is a long-term thing. Now, obviously, competition in markets is a good choice and encourages innovation, and in many cases, it's a better thing. Just a little thing on greed. Limit excessive pay driven by greed. So hubris. Hubris is um, the Greeks for It's a Greek word. Classical Greek word, basically it came from 
the gods made the gods punished hubris. You got proud and then you got hammered. Um, but basically, excessive pay creates hubris. It creates a tournament among subordinates gambling for the big prize. So it, it creates winners and losers. Great for testosterone. Great for the winners. Lousy for the losers. Extrinsic, um, extrinsic motivation drives out intrinsic motivation. There's a lot of research that shows that. Hubris creates overconfidence. It underestimates probabilities of, 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 and the consequences of failure. So we powerful and overconfident and greedy executives lead their companies into destruction. Lots of examples of that. You get this great leader myth. Encourages focus on short-term results. I, mean, I don't know. Do you have it here? Still? New, new guys appointed as CEO and the results the following year have got to be better. Yeah? As though you can turn around a company in six months or whatever it is. Um, so it's, this is, leads to the responsibility belongs to shareholders, directors, CEOs, and regulators to move us away from this, um, this, this hubristic situation. Uh, I just put at the top there from Christopher Marlowe the story about I I Icarus who... Um, made wax of wax. His father made him wax wings to escape from Sicily or wherever it was, and he flew too high. And it goes, till swelled with the cunning of a self-conceit, his waxen wings did mount above his reach, and melting the heavens conspired his overthrow. Um, I'm afraid that's where we, we, we end up very often. And, but this is the question of looking at power. All right, this is, con this is summary. Fungibility. Satisfactions are not fungible. So there's four for the, 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 you know, the testosterone, the oxytocin, um, serotonin, etc. You can't replace one by the other. They're not, replace, they're, not, they're, they're not like money that could be moved across. But desire is fungible. You can shift your desires from one thing to another. And therefore, we need to sublimate, to, ride, to move our desires so that they're balanced and, and, and greater than... Um, just, just money. Um, virtues are, are, are their own reward, the measures of our health. And it just has a consequence for prospect theory. Um, prospect theory, Danny Kahneman's thing, you've all come across that? The idea that losses, we, we count losses more seriously than profits. So given, okay, given the choice of making 100 profit, we would not, um, we, we would need to, loss would have to be less than 100. Um, that's regarded as a um, is it illogical, and it is. And I think the reason for it is that loss, losses of reputational relationships and security are clearly much worse than any gain that we could get of those. You can't get them back again. And that probably means that when we apply that thinking, which is natural, to money, which is our work, we can tend to be too conservative. So I think we, you know, it's like getting people to invest in the market when they're younger, etc. Very difficult to do, for them to do that because of this prospect theory. And the, the point is that money is fungible, even if these satisfactions are not. Some vocational consequences: institutions matter and can be changed. Um, pros sorry, that is, I didn't finish that. I just repeated my previous. Uh, okay, forget the sub. The sub. Um, Okay, that's all I want to say. Institutions matter and can be changed. And final slide, just some common views. Greed is, the common view is greed is inherent in all, in all human nature, 
what I'm suggesting is that temptation is inherent, but it leads to unhealthy addiction. Greed is necessary for economic prosperity. I think no. Prosperity requires creativity, hard work, and collaboration. Greed destroys collaboration for short-term benefit. Common view very often is greed is an emotion that needs to be controlled by reason. I think what comes out of this is greed is an emotional pathology and needs positive emotional development. Um, all inequality, some people regard all inequality as a result of greed. I think that's excessively, inequality can rise by chance, differences in personal effort or by reprehensible exploitation. It's only the exploitation that's wrong. And interestingly, altruism is the opposite of selfishness. No, I don't think so. So a lot of people say, you, to, in order not to be greedy, you should give money away. I think they're different. Justice is the virtue that governs greed. A proper self-love self is the true foundation of altruism. Greed is getting money. Altruism is giving it away. There are times when you can give, but it's important to control Greed, because greed is related to wants, and those wants need to be appropriately desired, need to be appropriately directed. So, there I have it. It's a lot of it. Um, if you want to go home straight away or get to the drinks straight away, I understand. But if you want to make some comments or responses, um, I'd be grateful for anything that you say now or in, in any email. You can find me very easily on the web. Um, as I'm still working on this submit it for publication hopefully within the next four or five weeks um, but uh, over to you yeah. okay so the question is the Quakers had fixed prices but if you could differentiate in by segments pricing by different segments uh, would that be wrong well the point being that different market segments may be different the elasticities, the elasticities may be different yeah. For an example, your iPhone is produced for a certain cost, but it's sold at different prices across markets based on what the market is prepared to be. Okay, so yeah, so, okay, so, 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 I mean, I, I suppose a good question. The question is whether the, the ability to distinguish, to, to, to separate the markets is a collateral power or not. Is it, I mean, the consequences, I suppose, is you get, where do you get the cheapest iPhones in the States? Depends you can get the customs without money. Get the customs, sorry. So, I mean, clearly, if, if, if you're trying to avoid tax, it's a problem. Um, if you're, and, and the question is how you're distinguishing, how you're drawing the boundaries between the markets. If there's deception involved or a, an unfair power, I think it is, it, it is unfair. Um, but that maybe that's a complicated question if, in fact, there is deception or if the use of the power is unfair. Um, In some respects, yeah, I mean, I, it, would it be better to eliminate the distinctions in the market, I think, is the question. And if, if it would be, then maybe we should work for eliminating those differences in the market to make it, make, make it fairer and more effective. Because certainly having smaller markets is not, it's not efficient. If I can die into the podium. I'll, sorry, you should have said so earlier. <laughs> uh.
Um, Anthony, I want to ask, is, is there a player that's more important than another in this market? So given that greed and, um, and, and, and virtue coexist in the market, um, what, what lubricates and drives the market? Because the suppliers of capital are the ones who ultimately uh, devote capital to enterprise. So, so does this eventually end up in how you control shareholder greed? And is there sort of a, a, a pull to those who have most capital are most greedy? because they're most ruthless. Or <laughs> <laughs> Look, there may be something on that score. Can I talk into this mic? I think so, yeah. Um, that there may be something in that score, but I, I think, I mean, the psychology is that the entrepreneurs are not greedy. I mean, I don't think, you know, even the guys that are really, if you look at the, the, the well-known people, Steve Jobs, um, you, you know, Bill Gates, um, the Amazon uh, Amazon.com guy, you know, would you, Jeff, just Bezos, would you say they were driven by greed? It's it, difficult to say that. I mean, they, they were lucky. They were certainly energetic. Um, they certainly, I mean, certainly in the case of Microsoft, were um, very happy to manipulate in terms of pushing prices up as much as possible. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the guy's given away it all, given it all away. Um, so, Greed wasn't the prim primary motivation of what he was doing. And I mean, the people, you know, who do you know that is creative that's greedy? I don't, you know, I don't know anyone. Um, it's a, it, they're different, they're, they're different motivate, they're different, different motivations really. Um, you know, the greedy guy, uh, um, sorry, I won't, I won't, I won't say that again. I'm, I, I'm about to be rude to someone, to groups of people, but, uh, you know, I think um, the people allocate their capital to the place that's most profitable, and that's quite acceptable. But you know, at the moment we're rolling in capital internationally. Interest rates are you know negative in most places. It shouldn't be difficult to find capital. We may be institutional structures that need to be improved to make it to make it easier to um, to to be innovative. But it seems to be working fairly well. Um, and, but it remains a challenge for the institutions which we represent in many cases to make sure that we are providing capital to places that are um, where it can be can be usefully applied. Um, but you know that's our job. Well, you know the job of our institutions. Um, Anthony, thanks very much for the presentation. Um, the Royal Commission in Australia. Um, there were certain kind of practices in the financial services sector there that came under heavy criticism. Um, what were some of the practices that kind of stood out for you um, and how do you see that in the context of, of this framework? So um, <clears throat> the ones that stood out for me were the uh, pressured selling. So I'm afraid some produced by companies associated with South African entrepreneurs in Australia, um, uh, where, I mean, the one, perhaps the worst, was where a Down syndrome guy ended up spending a chunk of his pension on um, 
on a life insurance policy that he didn't need. Um, there's been a lot of compensation, as I think here, or certainly in the UK, for policies sold associated credit credit life, where the guys were sold unemployment insurance and they couldn't possibly claim on it because they were, they, they were students and didn't have jobs. So that sort of heavy stuff, I mean, the, the a lot of money's been paid back. I mean, I was li uh, by, by billions of dollars are now being paid back to people for mis-selling of various sorts. I'm less concerned with, you know, which sounds the, the shocking type stuff with um, people were charged by insurance companies for, dead people were charged for services, because I think they probably would have got compensated if they'd been on, you know, if they, if, that probably would have been undone at some point. Um, and there have been some instances where the regulator have taken companies to court and based on what was came out of the Royal Commission and the courts have found in the company's favour, and I think in most cases that was right. Um, but so the, the stuff that did come out, all that came out of the Royal Commission, which was very circumscribed in what it could investigate, only things that the companies reported to having done wrong were actually dealt with in public. So they were really naughty things. Um, you know, the thing, uh, mis-selling uh, in most of the case. Overpricing didn't even come into it. And, you know, this question of the loyalty tax, I think, is one that, that, that's going to come, come out over the next little while. Um, there's certainly we're going to move towards uh, fee-for-service for advice. So um, conflicted advice and salesmanship of people putting uh, – salesmen, financial advisors effectively putting you into products that pay huge commissions will, will be reduced. And Australia is pretty much ahead on that particular score. We haven't had front-end loaded um, life insurance policies for 30 years. And now they're squeezing the, the 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 trail commissions that people have been earning. So um, we've made some progress. Uh, my real concern and why I've really got involved here is that there's been this huge um, criticism of the financial sector, and I think the financial sector just bunkered down and hoped it'll blow over and they can go back to their old wicked ways, um, you know, at a later stage. And I think this is an opportunity to to, to try and change. Margaret. Inadequate, inadequate claims underwriting up front. We are actually in the short-term space of more and more and more sophisticated risk models. And then the ultimate claims underwriting is very clumsy with a lot of repudiated claims. Um, it's my impression that Huey got into a lot of trouble in Australia on that score. I can't speak. I can't speak. Sorry, this is you, you get repudiated claims. Um, I can't speak for about that. I don't know how much was happening. There certainly was unhappiness on claims, much on dis the disability side. Um, but frankly, the life insurance industry has been, you know, just walking like you know dead men in that space. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, they, they they were they were offering disability insurance to people that could claim immediately. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I've been told that companies are now paying claims. If people want to claim, they can have it. They're not repudiating at all because they're scared of, of um, you know, they're scared of the of the of the of the of the backlash. And that's 
that demonstrates that they actually hadn't thought about it in the first place, because what they should have been doing is saying, this, we have thought about it, we can't pay claims to every, every, everyone, and this is our, we, but we are confident that what we're doing is fair. And the fact of the matter is that they weren't being fair, so they've lost the ability to say no for the moment. Can you hear me, Anthony? Yes, I can. Hi, it's Simon Lowe. How are you? Hi, Simon. Good. Um, you take as your starting point that, that greed is bad. Um, the, the question to the topic was, is greed good for business? And I'm not sure we've actually addressed that prior question. I mean, there are lots of examples of abuse, but what is wrong with greed itself? Is it because it's unfair? Um, and that might be okay if you're using an economic rent argument because it's been well proven that economic rents are bad. But if it's not an economic rent argument, then, then what is the argument that, that greed is bad? Um, I'm, I'm finding I'm missing that point. If, it, if it's because it's unfair, then you might need to explore a little bit about what is fairness exactly. Also looking at you, I think you were trying to relate greed with desire. So if, if it's misplaced desire, then is desire wrong itself? And do we, have, do we have a sense of like good greed or bad greed? So I think maybe exploring a little bit about the nature of greed itself before then addressing how to, how to address the problem of greed. Um, can we turn that mic? All right. Um, I think the point is that, is greed good? Well, I think it's very clear that economic rents and manipulative pricing create benefits for one party and not another, and that's bad. And the argument, the argument that is very often made um, by economists and business people is, in fact, although that is bad, we have to we we have to accept that. This is what Keynes says, anyway. Um, we have to accept that because the benefits of economic motive of um, of motivation are such that um, people motivated by greed create economic growth, and the economic growth has huge benefits to society. Um, the point of the, uh, the the point of the sort of mind map is to say that um, our motivations are not related. Our motivations are fungible; they do not come just from money uh, or from narrow views of self-interest. We are motivated by dopamine, which leads to other satisfactions, uh, f um, esteem family, relationships, um, uh, creativity, religious, etc. So that um, the view that there are benefits from greed in the economy are actually misplaced. They don't come from self-interest. They don't come from, from greed for money. They don't come from, um, from people do not invest because they because they're animal spirits and they're greedy. They come from a number of different other reasons why people do economic things. So the greed is the, the actual idea that greed is a good thing for business is actually misplaced in a misunderstanding of motivation. Um, and yes, and that is the point that greed is the different types of motivation and desire um, in, the, in their appropriate place, they're good. But when they turn into addictions, where you get, you're not looking for actual satisfactions, but you're actually motivated by the, you're just motivated to do, keep on doing things for the, you know, gambling, to keep on gambling for the sake of the gamble, 
um, you're then misplaced. That's then misplaced desire. Um, yeah. Thanks. No more questions from Joburg's side. Anthony, thank you very much. Um, what was that um, Anthony is a winner of the, or a holder of the Murray Medal, which is society's most prestigious award. It is made really, I think, to made 18 times thus far. Um, and I think you can see why. Thank you very much for being here. Refreshments on this side tonight. There's a small little something just to say thank you. Thank you very much. And very good to have you with us. Hope to see you back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Thanks.